Hello and welcome back to another podcast from the Oxford Society for International Development. My name is Sam and I'm the Society's current Africa Events Officer. Today we'll be covering a topic that has dominated the media over the course of the past year, vaccines. Whilst booster jabs are being offered in countries like the UK, there are several countries in Africa where less than one in five people are fully vaccinated. Targets have been missed and the level of inequality in terms of global healthcare systems has been tragically exposed. To understand a little more about this issue, I spoke with Adia Diemi, MBE, who is a global health policy expert, currently working with the Department for Health and Social Care. He's also a PhD student at King's College London and the founder of the African Healthcare Hackathon. Thank you very much for agreeing to speak with me, Adi. Um, let's get straight into it. So a first question to get a general overview of what things are looking like in Africa with regards to vaccines. How would you sum up the state of affairs, um, which might be quite a big ask? Yeah, thanks, Sam. Um, and the first caveat, which I'm sure you might have already said, but just to the clarity, is I, I'm a civil servant, so I'm quite restricted by what I can say. Um, but, you know, I'm given as much uh, independent personal opinion as possible. Uh, but when it comes to vaccines across Africa, there are quite a number of, of issues. Um, you have the commitment from from kind of Western high income countries to the ability of receiving countries to absorb those donations. Some donations uh, or vaccine donations, um, you know, are near expiry. And the health systems that are receiving them across African states don't have capacity to kind of or the ability to get them across where they need to be at record time. Some have storage requirements as well, cold chain storage. So it's challenging healthcare workers, um, you know, not a lot of um, healthcare workers who understand how to administer are qualified to administer in the right settings, etc. So a number of challenges. And the last one I probably would pitch in as well is sometimes for the ministries and departments of health that are receiving them. Again, it's a number of um, partners and stakeholders that are kind of given the vaccines. It's not just the big one that we might all know of, COVAX. Sometimes countries are doing their own, you know, bilateral donations. Um, and yeah, because of my kind of civil service, I, I, I won't name countries explicitly, but country A would be given one, country B would be given one, country C would be given a batch. And it's it's quite hard on systems that are quite stretched already to kind of manage all of that in time, particularly with vaccines that are very near their expi- expiry dates. Would you say that this is the case across the whole of Africa? Is this an Africa-wide problem or is there much more regional uh, disparity and difference? Um, it's a good question. I think on the majority, it's, it, is a, it is an Africa-wide problem. Um, and actually not just Africa-wide, there are lots of other developing countries in similar positions but but the focus of this conversation is on Africa and yeah it's it's challenging to manage lots of products at once you know the um the NHS vaccine delivery program is actually more complex than Tesco Express's logistics program you know it's very complex to do a supply chain thing you know Amazon took it took them years to figure out how to do logistics to you know delivery to to point of collection well so it's going to take a while before member states are in a position to do that very well. And um, given all the complexities I've mes- mentioned before, it's, it's it's just a very tricky to do that. But yeah, to answer your question directly, it's across Africa. So if we focus a bit now on this idea of the kind of logistical issues which lie behind um, the lack of access to vaccines, 
could you kind of go into a bit more detail, of course, without specific examples, I'm sure, but on what these logistical issues look like in, in practice? Yeah, so let's say you're receiving um, vaccine A, which requires refrigeration, um, and you are also receiving vaccine... So you're, so you're receiving vaccine A, and it's coming in on airline B at 10 o'clock in the morning. It requires cold chain storage. At 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you're also receiving vaccine B, which is slightly different, and it's a different size, and then at four o'clock in the afternoon, you're receiving vaccine C. And, you know, they all are different quantities, different sizes. Um, the medical director or clinician you have that can understand it and say, actually, it must go here or it should be administered in this way isn't available because they're also having to you know be on the ward doing X, Y, Z. And you, you can already see the picture that's been painted of a very challenging situation. On top of that, I should have also mentioned the vaccine reluctance or vaccine hesitancy of, of many people across the continent. Um, so you might be able to get this to, um, and, 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 you know, consider this beyond your elites in a society. So your metropolitan elites who are very aware of the efficacy and or who believe the efficacy more than your um, other quote-unquote average citizen. So, so, so all of those logistical problems of receiving it in an airport, managing it, getting it to a place of safety and storage and then getting it out to the places you want to again where your established routes of kind of delivery don't don't exist compare it to if it was the other way around and the, the britain was receiving a donation you know there are motorways and and very clear express pathways from heathrow to birmingham etc so so you can see already it's it's quite a logistical challenge to kind of get a vaccine log it properly and again, on the login, we're talking about you know paper systems. It's not great, you know, not 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 one sustainable central IT system that can log a barcode of a product and you know take it from point of accept you know delivery to to operational clinic. And then on top of that, and I know this is kind of something you've done quite a bit of research on. When it comes to the training of healthcare professionals, it seems that there's also there um, a problem that has led to people not getting the vaccines that ideally they would have access to yeah yeah healthcare worker availability is is just is is just another problem on top of many other problems um there is also politics within that uh again it's useful to contrast and compare to the uk where um and this is all public information so i'm happy to talk about it is gps being paid and reimbursed for their you know delivery of vaccines pharmacists being paid so gps for you know if, if you want to wear have have contracts and they are paid per service just as hospitals are they're reimbursed per service so you, when you do an operation you you know go to the nhs england or department central and you say we've done this operation on mr smith and you are reimbursed for a particular cost similar with gps when they do a particular appointment they're they're paid at a particular cost so in in, 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 in in Africa, where there isn't a great tax system, all of those problems come to bear where you're asking healthcare workers who are already stretched, some aren't always paid on time, you know, doctors are striking, to then, you know, how, how, how do you motivate, how do you uh, reimburse all those people to do heavy lots of, you know, shifting and, and delivery of vaccines? So 
from what I'm kind of understanding, this points towards greater political problems. And it seems that COVID-19 is just a, a manifestation of some of the issues with infrastructure, the political system, fiscal policy, and things like that. Yeah, I, I mean, politics comes into it in a very sharp way. So, um, again, without naming countries, but you might have foreign entities who are willing to donate lots of vaccines. And, and we're seeing lots of, you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, vaccine diplomacy here, where one country um, has a vaccine, which which another Western country might look at and say, actually, its efficacy is, is questionable. But anyway, this country has, has lots of vaccines and, and they're very willing to come into an African member state um, support with the rollout, donate lots of vaccines, even do the translation from its own foreign language to, to the local language. And there's a politics there of whether they accept it because they know that if they accept the vaccine from the foreign partner, the Western partner may have a view as to actually why are you signing with that? We don't recognise that vaccine. You know, Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine has had lots of profile and support from government. It's 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 a very um, exemplary of you know UK excellence and science and research. So, 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 so there's wider geopolitics at play as well. And kind of in, in, in tangent with, or in tandem with this idea of vaccine diplomacy, the, the phrase that was touted a lot at the start of the, the pandemic was vaccine nationalism. How much can we, how much should we and can we really attribute the, the lack of perhaps access to vaccines to the desire of many states that were able to purchase a large number of vaccines? Um, they're kind of lack of will perhaps to one one could ask share should we really attribute it to that or is that a an unhelpful way of thinking about the whole vaccine situation again sorry to caveat very heavily uh with this as a personal opinion um and not 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 one that, that, that aligns with my civil service role necessarily but um i, I take a different view on, on on this question and the topic which is that most Western democratic governments are just that they are they are democratic. They are working on the will of their people. Um, I think history has shown. When I say history, I mean the very short history of the last year or two. That what would have been perceived as vaccine hoarding actually was was something that just wouldn't have been palatable for governments to have not done. What I mean by that is if if for example the UK government donated whatever vaccines it had at the time a year ago. Um, and it didn't have any other vaccines available for a booster campaign right now, you would find the government's poll in, in a very challenging position. So, 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 so government is the final instrument of the will of the people. It's elected on, on based on the will of the people. And yeah, I, I think what you hear on the streets and family and friends and what you see in the papers is a reflection of the mood that people are nervous about this. And, and you know, it, yes, you can see it in one lens as protectionism, is nationalism but actually if you look at the man or woman on the street that that you know their sphere of influence their sphere of concern is is their family and their nuclear family etc and 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 i think they would have different views as to the ability of their government to protect them first hmm. no, that's a very very valid point actually and very useful i think because it's not one that it's one that i don't think many people actually hear it, it, it is very um moral and right to, to to question these things and to make sure that there is equity of access as much as possible. The truth is, however, if a government was not to be able to vac- you know, vaccinate its population, wasn't wasn't able to offer boosters and didn't have that that 
it, it, it just wouldn't you know be elected in the next in, in in the next election it just wouldn't have the account of, you know it, it just would be would be held to account by its people to say why aren't we being protected um you know vaccine production is 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 a very fluent thing there you know the medicinal products that we needed to make vaccines fluctuates and and so it's it's very hard i think for for governments to be able to say you know actually the stock that we have we won't provide for our population and we will do xyz so it is about excess and you know making sure that actually your national populations are protected first before you can think about excess for other nations and kind of playing on this idea of the comparison between the UK and many African nations what are the 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 major differences between how these two sides were able to gain access to vaccines and how the vaccines that are being used um, were were secured governments with 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 low income governments with with low science you know research and economies struggle in a situation like this uh not only is there the relationships and the networks with pharmaceutical companies to understand kind of and do horizon scanning and and actually not 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 many african countries are in positions of of strength to do that horizon scanning and to have had that forward look to kind of see what's coming ahead to have had the capital to invest and to secure contracts at very early stages and again, this is a very competitive global market. So the UK, and, and again, we see this play out in the media, the UK was competing with EU countries to secure vaccine contracts. So um, in, in that comparison stage, you know, African countries are, are even just, just, just struggling with the health system, you know, basics and the, the health system strengthening is, is the focus. So to then think about vaccine task force and people that can focus specifically on securing vaccines they don't have that, um, you know, economic base that that, yeah, just 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 you know, strength to be able to pull resources together, which which is why we see it on a WHO Afro or African Union level basis. You know, African country member states aren't in individual positions of, of power to be able to leverage um, for individual, uh, you know, country gain. So it's very difficult, and, and the UK has you know benefited from strong industry, Oxford, AstraZeneca, as as an example. Um, being able to you know manufacture and, and produce something at a at, at great speed but that just that capacity and capability isn't isn't around on the continent in in great supply so perhaps looking to the future and the future of development within africa focusing on the healthcare aspect of it what do you think the the pandemic can teach governments and also development organizations um, about the need for specific areas of development in Africa and within certain states, especially that have struggled to gain access to any vaccines. It's a really good question, and I'm unfortunately quite pessimistic at the moment because I'm not quite sure what it can teach us. I'm 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 not sure how many political leaders are learning the lessons from it. I think. Um, there is, you know, the obvious stuff like greater attention needed to pay to health, the health systems resilience, um, the fact that, you know, systems that were able to understand the vaccine that, that, that had trust with their citizens were able to get them vaccinated quicker than, 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 than others. Whether this translates into meaningful investment into healthcare infrastructure, etc., is, is still to be seen. 
Um, and, you know, it, again, it's not too dissimilar to what we see in some Western governments where arguments about investment into NHS are kind of rambling. We saw um, in this country the rise in national insurance to fund social care. And you see some reports that that's potentially being, you know, wound back because of the cost of living crisis. So, you know, African countries aren't, aren't, aren't very dissimilar to Western states where actually, and, you know, the US even, for example, we see how politicised that is and, and, and how much would you say COVID is going to change healthcare in the US? You know, maybe not very much. So, uh, sorry, I'm not, I'm not very optimistic here this evening. Perhaps not optimistic, but perhaps realistic, which is perhaps what's needed as well. Um, now, of course, it's 2022 has just started. Um, would you say there's hope for an improved response, perhaps and a, a real increase in the percentages of people that are being vaccinated in Africa, especially now that perhaps a lot more, a lot of other states are moving away from or have have achieved much higher percentages of fully vaccinating their population? Again, comparing and contrasting to the UK, just 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 to show how how global these problems are, you you have a set population of people that are kind of the early adopters and and are immunocompromised or at risk and, and want to get vaccinated and they're you know very switched on to the science they understand and they believe and they trust the efficacy and and, and they do it. You then have another population of people who are um, reluctant, hesitant. Um, for lots of different reasons, and then you have the very final third who will not have it, very strongly won't have it. Africa is its same mix of, of, of people, or sorry, Africa. African countries have its same mix, of have similar mixes. And I think the, 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 the thing to focus on here and, and my final answer to the question is that in, in, in a similar way that UK uh, healthcare leaders and Western healthcare leaders are talking about living with the pandemic, I think you'll see that in, in many African member states as well, where actually there is a view that its impact isn't the same as what it's been in the UK and US. And if, if they aren't receiving the vaccines in, in, in reasonable time, you know, without short shelf life, what is the point of trying to, you know, do this rollout and perhaps pivot to a, a way of living with it? Of course, we, we started speaking off about uh, started off speaking about the lack of access to vaccines. But would you say that vaccine hesitancy and the lack of will is perhaps an even greater um, reason why there's you know only nine percent vaccinated across Africa right now? Um, vaccine hesitancy and vaccine reluctancy, I, I don't think is the biggest contributor in in many parts. Um, and, and actually that there is regional variation because in some parts, yes, it is the biggest contributor. We're actually, you know, the governments are getting vaccines to villages, to um, rural areas, and there is just a reluctance to, you know, not engage with that. Uh, but it varies. So so, so when it is, I, I don't, so, so when vaccine reluctancy and vaccine hesitancy is, is a factor, I don't think that's going to shift anytime soon because that relies on trust with your state to trust that the person coming in a white lab coat means you well and that, that this this product that they want to inject into your arm is for your benefit. And, you know, these, these are healthcare systems where actually that pathway from state to patient hasn't existed before. And so in this pandemic, you're, 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 you're running to, you know, your citizens and saying there's an emergency, there's an emergency, take this thing based on little trust, based on little foundation. Um, so it's going to take time. And I think by that time, the world, 
you know, in that kind of loose concept would have moved on and would have moved to a, a setting of a footing of living with the pandemic. And that does seem to be um, the, the likely outcome. Would Will living with the pandemic look the same everywhere? Of course, there's a, going back to some of these issues that we spoke about earlier, things like infrastructure, healthcare, living with the pandemic will still require hospitalizations. What do you think that would look like in Africa? It will look like what we've seen so far, which is little national conversation and international conversation about mandating vaccines, little conversation about antivirals and therapeutics to um, treat people who have caught COVID because actually the hospitalisation rate has been quite comparable and, and quite low. And, and that's also pointing to the very younger demographic of, of Africa. You know, Africa has, has a younger population and so they're able to, um, you know, survive a little bit more compared with their European counterparts. And, you know, for, for, for any African diaspora person, I imagine like yourself, you look at the WhatsApps that you might receive from your aunties and uncles about these, uh, you know, about COVID. And, and some are obviously taking it seriously and doing, doing the right things. I think, um, and, and I can only speak personally from a West African perspective, Nigeria specifically, I, I, I think there is a lot more will to kind of move on and, you know, a little consideration of, of some of the realities that scientists may think about COVID. So I think it will it will look a little bit more pre-COVID than what you might see in the UK as post-COVID. Again, whatever that means. But but I, 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 I don't see the political will there to, to, you know, do lots of big shifts in terms of healthcare system infrastructure and, you know, vaccine passports in 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 african member states etc because just the capacity and regulations just just aren't there okay and yeah it does seem very much like that i think especially when we look at the um it does seem that many parts of africa have been quite resistant to um the vac or at least more resistant to the vaccine than than we have seen in europe so at least there's perhaps a, a dose of positivity in that um, a kind of final question um, is, of course, your um, kind of a global, a global healthcare, especially um, kind of professional and expert. Um, that's what your research kind of focuses focuses on, and you've kind of looked a lot into Africa. If you were, of course, I know you said you're quite pessimistic earlier, but if we were to try, if you were to speak of your hopes for maybe de um, development in Africa with regards to healthcare over the next, let's say, twenty years, um, what would you hopefully see, whether that be on a um, governmental basis or even just on a social level in terms of understanding of healthcare? Yeah, I've got to be very careful here because my personal views are quite are quite radical. And again, just, just the caveat that this is a personal opinion and I, I'm uh, you know not, not speaking any other professional working capacity. My, my, my personal opinion would be that following this change in 20 years time, we would see a lot more radical, nationalistic, intentions and behaviors from African healthcare leaders and African leaders at large. Uh, whilst we absolutely live in a globalized world, I think um, some of the reliance or collaboration globally that we've expected or hoped for hasn't always trickled through. And so perhaps there are more radical ways to take that kind of development, domestic development into your own hands. I know that there's a TRIPS waiver 
which is the legislation that prevents, you know, copying of pharmaceutical ingredients or, um, sorry, not necessarily ingredients, but, uh, the, but the trips waiver basically is, is intellectual property protection. So, uh, you, you know, you can't copy a vaccine or a factory can't copy a vaccine and it has to have the proper license, etc. I think there are examples of India and what it's done with, with, with that and what the Indian government and state has, has kind of done with its pharmaceutical industry to, uh, yeah, we'll go very diplomatic about how I say this, but, but, but to encourage and fester its domestic pharmaceutical um, industry. In the same way, China and, you know, its, its relationship with intellectual property of Western manufacturers and the factories that are able to produce what some people might call knockoffs. In the same way, I think African member states might 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 benefit from being a bit radical and supporting their 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 countries to kind of do more in this space for the benefit of their own, you know, citizens and 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 not necessarily relying too much on on the international funding thing, which is very lucrative, very helpful, very welcome. Uh, but, you know, I would I would shift the Overton window a little bit and be a lot more nationalistic and radical. Perfect. Thank you very much. And yeah, I think that's a that's a very interesting, but also I think a very necessary view on what the future could look like, especially when it comes to healthcare. How do you have a final comment, maybe? I was just going to say that the um, the politics of, of, of the West, again, whatever that means, but, but you know, the, the Western Global North Hemisphere, suggests that that kind of drawn up of, 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 of the door bridge. We, we saw it with the Trump administration, um, the America First agenda, and you see it in many um, you know, European elections and, and some of the politics in Britain. So the, the reliance from African member states on, on the West to you know, support, we, you know, we see the, um, the overseas development assistance and the commitment of 0.7% and some of the challenges of the UK being able to to commit to that suggests that you know rather than relying on those international partners and or even looking for another international partner i.e china etc perhaps let's 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 be a little bit more radical a little bit more focused and self-reliant as difficult and as impractical as that might be i think um the impractical and the ridiculously radical is is what shifts generations and, and actually achieves change so aim big and and try and do it for ourselves would would be my kind of suggestion um but yeah that's just me shouting in the wind and one vital question i think going off on that or going off of that is that of course both you and me were members of the of the african diaspora specifically i believe the nigerian diaspora um how do you think members of the diaspora should really engage with these issues and also perhaps seek to play a role in that radical change we hope to see in our countries there are a number of ways um i'm actually thinking of of you know actively building one of those ways because I've, I've done a thing called a hackathon where i invite people to come together and we solve the problems of real life african organizations over a weekend and pizza and you know so 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 there are, there are those pra- practical ways of actually trying to come together and, and pick in organizations or businesses over, you know back home that we can support there is the most important way, which is actually remittances. And, you know, you might be aware or your listeners might be aware that remittances, uh, you know, what, what we give back in donations and, you know, to, to family back home is four times more what you give back in foreign aid. 
Um, so, so you know, actual, you know, financial direct support and help. And then, you know, being in positions of power in, 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 in our adopted lands. So here in the UK, you look at the representation of ethnic minorities in, in real, you know, corridors of power, decision-making platforms, in, in UK government, in the NHS, in, you know, DFID, FCDO, etc. And so, you know, trying to play your part and being in those spaces and advocating for other people to be in those spaces is also important. So there are many, many ways that diaspora like you and I can kind of play a role. And my suggestion and final advice would be to, you know, do one that plays to your strength. So if you are a vocal advocacy type person, then, you know, make sure you're in a lane where you're trying to be as vocal as possible. If you're a little bit more of a, you know, private diplomatic policy wonkish person, then try and find your lane and make sure your voice is heard there. But but wherever your strength is, wherever you, 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 you feel you have the most to offer, identify it as soon as possible and kind of get cracking because your people back home need you. Well, it was great speaking to Ade and I want to extend my gratitude to him for joining our podcast. It was a real pleasure to speak to him and find out more about the range of factors which are currently contributing to the lack of vaccinations in Africa. To those who are listening right now and are interested in learning more about this topic, I would encourage you to watch out for part two of the One Year 9% Vaccinated series, in which I'll be speaking to BBC journalist Peter Mwai about the media's portrayal of COVID-19 in Africa. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and please join us next time.